If a patient has been walking around with a single dark tooth, they're like, I've got a single dark tooth. They don't notice the rotations and the, and the whites and things. They're just obsessed about that. You get rid of that. Then they go, oh, my teeth are crooked. I was like, yeah, yeah, they were two weeks ago. But now, of course, now it's a thing, right? So if, if it's a cosmetic thing, I try and draw attention to it a bit earlier. If they're not, I just say, oh, just remind you, you know, this is exactly the same as it was before. You were crooked before, you're crooked now. And it's really important that you realize I absolutely cannot deliver perfect. And if you want a perfect result, you need someone better than me because I can't do that. What I can do is I can make it significantly better, but I can't make it perfect. Hello, Patrice Rati. I'm Jazz Glati, and you're listening to this episode because you've just finished part one and you are pumped to get into the full protocols for internal bleaching with Dr. AJ Ray Chowdhury. Or you just clicked on because you've got a patient next week who's got a black tooth and you want to follow all the protrusive pearls shared in this full guide on how to actually carry out internal bleaching treatment. Well, you're in luck because we cover all those things today. In the previous episode, so part one of internal bleaching, we covered about getting your diagnosis right, making sure you've got a really good root canal treatment, and also the difference between a yellow tooth, which is more likely to be like a calcific metamorphosis versus an actual non-mitral tooth, and why one will not need a root canal treatment. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, please go back one episode and check that one out. Now, towards the end of that episode, I left you on a cliffhanger because you got really saucy. We started talking about barrier materials, like what material, what restorative material should you put over your gutta perca before you put your whitening gel, right? Because the logic says that we need to put a barrier to prevent our peroxide gel from actually going into the root canal system. But you know what? I'm going to give you a spoiler now, right? What AJ actually practices is no barrier material providing you don't have a scope. Because the problem is, like, imagine you don't have a scope and you're going to provide some sort of a barrier like have you ever tried placing GIC deep down three millimeters below the CEJ and how difficult it is not to smear that glass iron material all the way up the tubules because if you smear them then how is that whitening gel how is the peroxide gel going to enter the tubules and that's when you get ineffective whitening that's when most of the tooth whitens but you get a neck that's still discolored so his argument actually is really good so we'll listen to that first thing up but we also talk about my protocol and what I've done as well. We go through every single detail and step-by-step -step protocol of non-vital bleaching, including tray design, how much to charge your patient, which gel to use, what do you put over the gel but before the restorative material, yada, yada, yada. There's a lot of ground we cover when it comes to internal bleaching. This is the ultimate guide you always wished you had. Hello, Patrice Rati. I'm Jazz Galati. And if you didn't hear from the previous episode, I'm not in my usual recording studio. So sorry if I sound a bit different. I'm also a little bit ill at the moment so probably sound a bit nasal but I look different because I'm in West London where my parents and my in-laws are so we got a lot of family support as my wife's heavily pregnant we're expecting baby number two any day now so that's why I'm in a different place but the show must go on you're gonna love the protrusive dental pearl not only did we summarize the, both those episodes in an easy to follow diagram with a flow chart just like we did for the icon one also which is the best ceramic episode uh, you can download that plus AJ has very kindly donated his patient advice sheet and his lab sheet. So you get three PDFs. Now, if you're Protrusive Premium, head over to the app or the web app, which is protrusive.app, uh, and then you can actually just download it. It's there in the Protrusive Vault section. Go ahead, download it right away. But if you're not Protrusive Premium, and if you want to gain from this poll, head over to protrusive.co.uk forward slash black tooth, all one word. That's forward slash black tooth, and you'll get all three PDFs. So thanks, AJ, for donating yours. And the Protrusive team have put together this fantastic little diagram inspired by these two episodes. There's loads of facets to this part two. It's very, very clinical. It's very geeky. But we also talk about communication. Like patients often use the word 
perfect. They want things to be perfect. And there's lots of connotations and things to be careful when we're talking about perfect. Because remember, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So AJ actually talks a lot about communication when it comes to doing this kind of treatment, which I think is absolutely golden. So please enjoy this episode and I'll catch you in the outro. Any tips and advice you can give to the humble GDP trying to do this in practice? <laughs> For the humble GDP who does the vast majority of the dentistry in the, in the UK, I'll tell you what I do. I don't put a seal on there. And, and, mm-hmm. I, and I was taught this technique by Martin Kelleher and, and he published that paper, the original one of the original UK papers with Poiser, Peter Briggs and Martin Kelleher. And he said, AJ, why are you sealing it? Firstly, you can't do it well. And for exactly the reasons you described, because this is when I was a first year registrar, I couldn't use a microscope. I couldn't use that microscope until much later. So he goes, AJ, you're just going to smear all of this up the walls. It's going to look like a bird poo in there. And the second thing is, he goes, and also, what are you filling it with? We are filling this with carbon hydroxide, which is dissociating into hydrogen peroxide. Why do, what is hydrogen peroxide, AJ? What does it, what's its job? Obviously, as a 28 year registrar, I not the first idea. And Martin Kelleher is just in many ways a polymath and would say well AJ let me give you a history lesson and it would be a long one but cycle forward he goes well you know have you heard of Vincent Angina nope ANUG yeah just about heard about it trench mouth maybe heard about it he goes well actually one of the reasons we used hydrogen peroxide was actually because it releases lots of oxygen it's very good for killing anaerobic bacteria and that's all they kind of had a hundred years ago to stop ANUG and ANUP occurring in the trenches so one of its primary jobs as we discovered it is to kill bacteria. So you're filling this entire chamber with an enormously hostile oxidizing product. You're not going to get any bacteria in there, AJ. And actually, to mm-hmm. the- especially for the short while that you're working exactly. and doing this procedure, uh, it may not be worth it, it without a scope to make it so messy with the glass ionoma. So I really respect that you said that. Actually, if you're in that scenario and you haven't got access to a scope and you haven't done this before, then maybe just to have a really good root filling, root seal with the with the GP yeah. uh, at the correct level, three to four millimeters below the the CJ, uh, and then allow the the peroxide to 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 get in there, right? Absolutely. And uh, yeah, except that's a niche, that may be a niche opinion. And uh, and that's if I'm doing my own whitening, which I almost always do. But if I'm returning it to a, a colleague, right? The colleagues I work with in primary care, they're just brilliant. I've got no problems that they're going to drop the ball. I worry about the patient in between who goes floating off. And that's when I want to seal something. So under those circumstances, I will seal it. If I'm doing the endodontics for somebody else, I, I don't have any strong views on what should be in there, really. I think it can be GIC or it can be something like IRM or calzonol, so something zinc oxide eugenol based. But I'll be placing it using a microscope. If you're gonna do it, it doesn't have to be a microscope, but it, I think you need magnification. And the trick is not to go runny, the trick is to do the opposite. You, got, you get your nurse to get it, your, let's say GIC or whatever, and so it's almost crumbly, and then you mm-hmm, pick it up mm-hmm. and you, you pack it in there, so it should be rollable into a sausage, and you pack it into there and go for the tiniest amount you can, pack it into there, and as, long, as soon as you've got a seal of a millimeter or two, you're fine. But the important thing is not to smear it up the walls. And that's one of the reasons I quite like something like radiopaque ketat chem, which is a white GIC, old fashioned GIC, or IRM, because it's white. Mm-hmm. So if I have smeared it up mm-hmm. the walls, which you will still do, depending on how closely you look at it, then mm-hmm. you can identify that that needs to be removed before the whitening occurs. Plus, you've got the pluggers, to, you know, you've got those pluggers that can reach there and, and, and do it. So if you don't have those pluggers, how are you going to reach that far below the CEJ? So you've got to have the right tools actually, to be able to, yeah. to do that. So if you're uh, really uh, keen to seal it, then maybe consider have you actually, are you going to make a mess of it or not? Yeah, so that's yeah. a, I think it's a really tangible, really key gem right you, there. You need actually. a master or Buchanan's plugger, yeah, to, to do that to a high standard. Exactly. Now, in that scenario, so 
you're tending towards, I think, based on the PDF you sent me, walking bleach technique, right? The inside outside technique. That's your yeah. preferred technique. Yeah. And I, I, Can you describe yeah. this technique for young dentists and students listening? Because I, I stopped using that technique a while ago. I use a different technique, sure. so I'll be able to share. I'm sure you probably use it as well. But if you describe the technique, I'll, let, I'll later tell you why I, I, I moved away from this one. I'm sure you've faced these exact same issues as well. You, but your, your handout was much better than the advice I used to give my patients. So it's probably something too where I dropped the ball. So please, yeah, so, please. I mean, an insider. So I, again, I'd never come across this until I did registrar training. And it's in essence, it sounds a bit obtuse. It kind of, you're leaving the access cavity open. And what the patient is doing is you, uh, the patient is using the, the gel, the carbamide peroxide, and they're inserting it into the access cavity and they're replenishing it. They leave it overnight. And when they're awake, they replenish it every couple of hours. And at the same time they replenish that, they use a normal whitening tray and they put a blob of it on the front of the tooth. And they, so then they're both bleaching the tooth from the inside, intracoronally and extracoronally. And, and do you, again, put a window adjacent teeth? Uh, yeah, in, yeah, in this yeah. Case? I, I do, because otherwise what they'll do is everything will change colour. And actually the other teeth will then go whiter quicker than the dark one. And actually they'll get worse. And, and I did do that a few times. Mm. I, you know, I made plenty of errors, especially as a registrar. Yeah, I was in a very safe learning environment where you know, they'd laugh at you and then they'd help you. So, yes, if you don't cut out the adjacent teeth, they'll whiten everything else. But what I found is this works extraordinarily quickly. The first time I heard it described, I thought, this, isn't, this ain't going to work for toffee. But anyway, I thought I'd go with it. I mean, I've had patients who phone me easily with like the next morning and say, this tooth is already whiter than the other teeth. It doesn't always work that quickly, but you, you really get very excellent results within let's say a week, two weeks max. If it hasn't worked within two weeks, mm-hmm. I've, I've had a few patients in the past where it's got to two weeks and they're like, it's better, but not quite. And I know they're not doing something right. Or, or they're basically just misunderstood my instructions, in which case it's my fault. But most of this, most of my patients, it goes rapidly. The problem is mm-hmm. that level of rapidity is that actually I can't get them back in time quickly enough to do the next things. If you're you up within a day or two to say, okay, actually, I want to see you, that's actually a bit problematic yeah i agree that's why you know diet actually getting them in the diary and zoning them in that way is uh, to predict how quick that's gonna happen usually i agree with you it happens very quickly and let's say you've got a compliant patient it happens very quickly and they've got the gel at home in the fridge and they're every couple of hours they're replenishing it they're they're washing it out replenishing it, and obviously using something like a, a teepee brush and single tufted brush to clean out the gunk yeah, from yeah, obviously yeah. when they're eating and stuff uh, from inside there so very important to have a good compliant patient with good hand skills to do this uh, and then once they've done it and the tooth's gone much whiter then they come back to you. Can you just explain, can you just finish off the protocol and then we'll talk a little bit about the, the mini steps within the protocol? Yeah, sure. So then once the, I ask them to overbleach the single tooth and objectively I just say, so it's visibly whiter than the adjacent, uh, sorry, subjectively I say, look, is it, it just tell me when it's visibly whiter than the adjacent teeth. And objectively I say, look, if it's 10% whiter, but I mean, look, there's, this is more art than science, but I know there'll be a degree of relapse. So as long as it's visibly whiter, then that's the time to stop. Nowadays, with social media, people are kind of sending you lots and lots of selfies. Selfies didn't exist, unfortunately, or fortunately, when I when I did this, <laughs> when I first started doing this. So that you can really get a sense of the direction of travel. If they're kind of ninety percent there within a day, you can't wait. You can't wait two weeks. So once they're happy, and I'm happy, I get them back in. Um, and the first thing I do is I. I clean it up a little bit, something simple, clean it up a little bit, and I will put some endo sponge in there or, or some sort of, so I don't put any cotton wool roll yeah, or cotton wool pledgets in there. Uh, I will use endo sponge or something visible, which is bright blue or bright purple, and uh, all PTFE tape is quite reasonable. Yes. And then I'll put uh, just a plug of something simple like IRM over the top of it, and then I'll leave them alone for 
a reasonable period of time. Minimum of 48 hours for me. But, you know, if, if it's a reasonable plug of IRM, they could be left alone for a week, two weeks, a month. That's, that's quite reasonable. And the reason I don't go directly to the final restoration is, again, is not evidence-based, but working on first principles. We know, like, with resin-based materials, composites, things like that, the oxygen-inhibited layer is, is both a good thing and a, and a bad thing. Oxygen-inhibited layer means that there is a layer on top of our, let's say, our composite, which isn't fully polymerized. But it means that it allows modern composites to stick to itself and you can layer on top. Yeah. When I, when I was an undergrad, we mm -hmm. were sometimes taught to put composite down, put another layer of resin, then put another composite down, another layer of resin. I'm showing my age here. But we don't need to do that because <laughs> you have a layer that sticks to the next layer because of the oxygen inhibited layer. However, the final layer of composite being oxygen inhibited means it's kind of sticky and not fully polymerized. And thus people will use glycerine or some sort of barrier product to light cure through that. Yeah. But the reason I'm drawing attention to that is if you think about what the whitening process is, that whitening process means that the tooth will still be releasing oxygen or you know, free oxygen species for a period of time after the whitening stops. So if you put your composite straight in there, you're going to have a layer of unpolymerized composite exactly where you want your coronal seal. So what you want to do is you want to let all that oxygen be released from the inside of the tooth before you do the final restoration. Does that make sense? Mm. Which is why you go for the uh, IRM. And then at some point later, now at, at this point, you're going to make them a new tray to do the whitening all around uh, for the rest of the teeth, a new whitening tray? Good question. So the answer is it depends. So the time to do your impression for the for your inside-outside whitening training is, is on the consultation or just before you do the access cavity. Because on the palatal aspects of my whitening tray, there is it, there's no divot that goes into the access chamber. It just completely covers over the top. So what that means, it allows the patient, let's say it is just a single tooth problem, right? It allows the patient to continue reusing that tray then for a very long period of time. If the, if the tooth, let's say, gets, they're not happy with the tooth or whatever, it gets darker after a year or two, they can use the same tray again, my tray, to re-whiten that single tooth. If they want to whiten all the other teeth, I need to know that beforehand. And even if they don't mention whitening, I have a conversation. I say to them, look, please don't misinterpret this. I'm not in the sales business. I don't think there's anything wrong with the color of your teeth and nor do I want to sell you tooth whitening. But if this is on your radar for your other teeth, you must let me know now because I need to plan this differently. Because then what I need to do is I can't get the patient to over bleach by 10% compared to the adjacent teeth. I need them to over bleach so it's 10% whiter than the final color they want all the other teeth. That creates a bit of unpredictability. So they sometimes have to go for a very white tooth wait for that to relapse, mm -hmm. then their target tooth is whiter than their other teeth, then they get their other teeth to match. When they get some degree of relapse, then they have to use two different trays, and it takes a level of bit of a sophistication for them to understand that just re-whitening with a normal tray will never get them exactly the same result in the future. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's a level of... Yeah, it's, it's part of the consent process, say that, look, this is we're going to significantly improve things, but you know, there's going to be a little bit of difference if someone comes up, up close sometimes. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were talking earlier before we hit the record button, there's these two really cool uh, handouts which you sent me, which had th this addendum at the bottom, which shows patients' examples of, you know what, this, this patient here, because there was a rotation and also because uh, this tooth was difficult to bleach in the neck area, there is a difference, but it's still a lot better than it started off with. So it's not really a failure because it's a great improvement, but so that the patient doesn't interpret that as a failure if it happens to them you've already shown them as part of your consent process uh, at the beginning so i really like that but and, and oddly of course this is just a matter of perception right if a patient has been walking around with a single dark tooth they're like i've got a single dark tooth they don't notice the rotations and the, and the whites and things they're just obsessed about that you get rid of that then they go oh my teeth are crooked i was like yeah 
yeah, there were two weeks ago. But now, of course, now it's a thing, right? So if, if it's a cosmetic thing, I try and draw attention to it a bit earlier. If they're not, I just say, oh, just remind you, you know, this is exactly the same as it was before. Mm-hmm. You were crooked before, you're crooked now. The wording we use is important. I think, unfortunately, it's permeated our, the word perfect has permeated our, in, our, our vernacular in, in, in our profession. And, and, and I don't like that word because I can't deliver that. And if the patient uses the word perfect, I pick them up on it. I say, oh, you use an interesting word, perfect, because perfect means it's a, it's a categorical, it's perfect. And it's really important mm-hmm. that you realise I absolutely cannot deliver perfect. And if you want a perfect result, you need someone better than me because I can't do that. What I can do is I can make it significantly better, but I can't make it perfect. And I try and, again, some people being a bit more objective, I say, well, what would you describe the cosmetics of your teeth being? And they're like, out of 10. Oh, is it? three is it four they're like oh it's five i was like, okay fine so as i've told you i can't get you to 10 out of 10 because 10 out of 10 is perfect but what number if i got you to would make you happy and a lot of patients go oh you know if it got to seven i'd be happy or if an eight or a nine you know if someone's a nine you've got to think okay can i get there but if someone says 10 you need to get out that that you know that that is that is a big this is problem. such good advice like for those those listening just rewind the whole minute listen again to the conversations that aj has with his patients because as a young dentist like you know, you hear your patient use the word perfect and you may not think anything of it because just like you said, the word is banded around so much, you know, perfect dental spa, whatever, all these names of practices are calling themselves perfect smile. Uh, where, how do you set those expectations? So I think it's a great thing you mentioned to pick up on your patients and actually just pause a moment. Okay, you use an interesting word. Let's talk about this. And, and certainly this, is, this can something sometimes bite you in the ass. So definitely pick up, pick, pick up these terms and, and make sure that you set realistic expectations. Always. And, and one of my things is with my team, always I'm saying, Luke, I want to under-promise and over-deliver. You know, if they're expecting a 7 out of 10 result, I'm not going to get a 7 out of 10 result. I'm, I'm going to do better than that. I know that. I'm not going to tell them that, but I know that. Under-promise, mm-hmm. over-deliver. Amazing. So now let's say you've got the full tray now. You've now whitened everything. The patient's happy. You're then going to replace the IRM with some composite? No. Because <laughs> if you... Repl- GIC? <laughs> Sorry, I'm being, I'm being a pedant here. If you replace it with some sort of anything, you're going to have a problem. So I think you've already realised I am a bit of a pedant. And this is not a simple, quick, cheap process. This has got to be done to exacting standards. If you, if you whack a bit of composite in there, it's going to fail. So... As you can imagine, I have a proper protocol for it. So this patient needs to be booked in for a long appointment or a reasonable appointment rather than just me cramming some IRM mm. in there. Rubber dam isolation back on, of course. IRM comes out really easily. You know, you get a bit of a poke or an ultrasonic, something like that. I've got mm. bright blue or purple endo sponge, which I take out, right? Pretty easy. I've got a really quite a long access cavity. So your, you know, your standard composite, if you just put some composite in there, you will absolutely get a void 100% of the time. So that ain't going to work. So the next thing I do is I, I irrigate it with some hypochlorite, simple hypochlorite, dry it, and then I use some isopropyl alcohol. Yeah, now this bit, again, it's maybe a bit controversial, maybe not, not that controversial, because you can buy it in the UK for endodontic purposes. But one of the isopropyl alcohol is brilliant at is getting rid of all the bits of eugenol. Some, some of our colleagues will be concerned that actually I've, I've introduced eugenol into that area with IRM or calzonol, which is a zinc oxide eugenol, that's fine. But actually, the way to get rid of eugenol is isopropyl alcohol. It, but it's just another way to get rid of all the other crud that's developed in that area, right? So you have a meticulously clean endodontic chamber. Then, mm-hmm. then you go back to your bonding, okay? So this is, in my opinion, like using a one-step bond, etc., is not going to work. I go back to a very old-fashioned, boring, three-step bonding protocol, etch, prime, bond, I, I personally use OptiBond FL, but there's lots of... I knew, I knew you'd say that, yes. 
Good man. Well, it's <laughs> but OptiBond FL has been around since it before is. I went to dental school. So it's mid 90s. Yeah. So we've got yeah. nearly 30 years of data on it, right? So, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the first mistakes I used to make, I'd get all of it really good. I'm really happy. But actually, if you get pooling of your, even though it's 48% filled, if you get pooling of your primer or your or your resin, you get this little layer. Now, now in, in the old days, when I graduated, an x-ray was that big. You couldn't see it. Nowadays, the x-rays are that big, and it drives you a bit potty having this line. <laughs> so the trick is, you do the etch, you get it immaculate, uh, isopropyl, sorry, then etch. Then you put your number one, uh, which is, let's say, your, uh, your primer. primer. You try and put the smallest amount you in. And you'll still put in too much. Then you've got to spend the rest of the time rubbing it all out, really rubbing it over those areas, over the dentine, but not the enamel. So you're taking it out more than you put in. You air dry it and don't blow some air in it. Like no matter how good quality your three and one tip is, you're going to blow some water in there. So you either use your high volume mm-hmm. suction or you use you, you blow the air onto your mirror and then mm-hmm. you use your mirror to kind of to blow the air into there. You get that spotless. Mm-hmm. Then you introduce your resin. Okay. And then again, you'll have a pool of it at the bottom. It always happens. Then you're going to spend the rest of the time getting it back out. It's really important. Mm-hmm. Then, mm-hmm. because the cavity depth is so low, for me, I can't put a standard uh, composite in there. I, I mean, it's all I can, but it doesn't look that good. You have to do it in really small increments. So one of the changes mm-hmm. of my protocol is I use, uh, I use SDR and I get it yeah. right to the bottom of it. And I basically jiggle it around, make sure I get rid of any of the voids. And then I slowly backfill it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then right, but I don't leave my SDR exposed. So I still cap it with some normal composite, some something radio opaque like uh, Gradia PA1. And is, is that because that's part of the protocol with SDR? Uh, I, I don't use SDR much. I used to use it. Uh, or, or does a Densply claim that you can leave it exposed? So, uh, oh, good question. Uh, so I think certainly it was dis- been described that it shouldn't be used in occlusal loaded areas. So I think they would probably okay. say that it's quite reasonable to leave it on the plate aspect of a central incisor but I don't fill the entire access cavity. And it's the same way I do endodontics okay. outside sure. of the aesthetic zone. I will fill the base mm-hmm. layer with SDR and then I'll put a capping composite. It's still quite recognized to do a sure. normal capping composite for occlusal, uh, in, in occlusal yeah. areas. And I'd, ideally mm-hmm. that, want, that you should have that radio opaque because again, that last little bit, if that last bit of composite is radiolucent, again, it'll just, it'll drive mm-hmm. you, it'll annoy you, it won't drive anybody, it won't annoy anybody else, but it'll annoy you. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so that's okay. my protocol. So can you see actually that that's why I was being about it. It's very different to actually just whacking mm-hmm. in some composite because you whack in some composite, you're going to go around in circles. On that note, one thing I tend to do, uh, and please let me know your opinion, and if you disagree, that's totally cool. Something that Ian Harris taught me, if you know, from uh, from Sheffield, oh, yeah. where I did my GCT, is uh, Phil, I actually do the, the seal next to the GP, if you like, with uh, GIC. So let's say you've done your internal bleaching, everything's gone well, uh, and you now you've got this large uh, and long mm-hmm. access cavity. About 70% of it will be with uh, glass item of cement, and then the final 30% w- w- with composite because of the, 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 the predictable of the chemical bond to, to GIC. Is that a bit outdated, you think? No, not, not at all. And in fact, when I was taught, uh, depending on which consultant was supervised me, some of them would say, fill the entire lot with GIC. It's completely fine. Mm-hmm. They're like, it's chemically blonded. Others would say, do it that way. Actually, no one taught, but SDR didn't exist. You know, these back then, you know, if it was if it was that it was it was like a highly flowable composite with just lots of resin and not much filler. So actually, you didn't want that. And that's very that's different to SDR, even though it might look similar. So it was always GIC, either the whole lot or with capped with composite. And I think that's still very reasonable. I I don't think something if you were to inject some GIC into there in my hands, that would just put lots of voids in it. So if you're going to use GIC, you kind of want to do the opposite. You want it so it's quite thick again, like a sausage. Take a little bit of powder onto your plugger um, and then plug that GIC. So you've got a really nice, dense GIC layer and then mm-hmm. 
either leave it exposed or put a small amount of composite over the top of it. Okay, just just in case anyone's not got SDR and they have so you know, GRC composite, is it's a valid way to do it. I, I appreciate that. And then one thing that we didn't uh, actually discuss, which I found to be quite significant, is uh, the access a proper access cavity and making sure that you remove the horns of the of the pulp chamber because a, a few times where I've had a, a slow start and I've actually gone back in and checked the magnification after actually. There's so much of the pulp chamber that I haven't removed or has not been removed properly. Uh, and even a specialist and the dentist, you know, we all make mistakes stuff. Previously, I got one back from them and I thought, whoa, hang on a minute. And I've got photos of me having to open it up and exposing the pulp chambers. And now this was amenable to, to, to good whitening. So the mistake I made in the past is actually making these tiny access cavities where actually you want to make them full form because a lot of these people are young when they have the trauma and then you get intrinsic you know, bleeding into the tooth and the black tooth and whatnot. And a lot of these patients are quite young. Any, any comments on getting the correct form of the access cavity? I'm glad you, actually, I'd forgotten that, but that, that is a common error I used to make because you take the history of where, where the patient rocks up, right? But really you're treating a 10-year-old tooth a 10 year old's tooth on a 40 year old patient so uh, yeah you're used to you know access cavities are getting smaller and smaller but so yes the mistake that i used to make was exactly that so if we take a step back really what you're describing is that you they would bleed then hemolytic products from the pulp they break down they create iron the iron gets stained and that causes that red staining right so your access cavity needs to be appropriate for let's say a 10 year old or whatever they were ultrasonics i think make quite a difference to me so ultrasonics is a very important part of my access plan and what other things do I do? So, yeah, so, I mean, taking out those pop horns, and, and, like an endo Z-berg can be quite reasonable. Mm. But mm-hmm. on that theme, actually, as you know, rightly, you know, access cavities are getting smaller because of armamentarium and things. And, you know, endodontists rightly are obsessed about saving perisophical dentine. Ninja, ninja access cavities. cavities. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but that, that is very good from an endodontic point of view. But in the aesthetic zone, that if I had a ninja access, that would actually completely compromise my endodontic treatment. So on, under those circumstances, I still like as part of my access to use something, I guess, would be considered a bit old fashioned, like a Protaper SX Burr, which will flare the coronal access much more. It's got a little bit like a kind of a bit, maybe an Eiffel Tower shaped and making sure that actually that, that's flared quite nicely. And and sometimes I flare, you know, if you, the demographics I treat are sometimes are older patients who still knock their tooth earlier. I take my access cavity might be larger than you would even think, because some of them, especially on the laterals, have had amalgam in there. Now, that's quite an important mm-hmm. subtle thing, because actually, even if the amalgam is now gone, the staining for the amalgam is is still there. And, and you know, unfortunately, I've seen one or two that the tooth has gone a bit green. And one of them was mm-hmm. properly green and I had a panicked friend and colleague telling me about it. And actually, it's actually at that stage, it's a bit tricky to, to deal with. But the history of that is what they would have had is an old amalgam with high copper content. And do you, I mean, have you been to the, you've been to the United States, been to New York? Yep. Do you see the Statue of Liberty? Yes. What, what color was she? Yes. Yeah. Very, very green. Green, right? So here's yes. a fun fact for you. She was not green when she was delivered. She was actually a lovely golden bronze coloured copper. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was high, she had mm-hmm. covered in lots and lots of copper when, when there's a guy called Bartholdi who designed her and it was made by George Eiffel of Eiffel Tower fame. And over these many years, she's become greener and greener because the, the copper in here has become oxidised. And with the old high copper amalgam, it's the same process that causes the teeth to go green. Um, but the problem is that's mm-hmm. not just the amalgam. That's all the bits that have actually gone into the dentinal tubules. So I'm afraid you're going to have to drill quite a lot of that out because you can't actually get those amalgam products out of these lateral incisor mm-hmm. kind of the. I've never actually seen that, but I can imagine it's not a pretty scene, and I don't want to ever see it. <laughs> they look like the Hulk. 
<laughs> Fine, that's very interesting. No, I, I never heard of that. But it's a good point to make sure you get all the uh, amalgam out of those. Just because uh, of time and stuff, I want to talk about an issue I had using this technique, which I used for, for, for some years, is that some patients were just hopeless. Have you met a hopeless patient that, you know, you're constantly having to pick bread or something out of the axis cavity and they're just progressing slowly and because they're just not able to clean, even though you made this perfect axis cavity, you've rehearsed it and in your handout, I said that you need to give them a little mirror to, to, to see and stuff, but some patients just, just can't do it. Uh, have you experienced that? Uh, more recently, no, but, but I guess that's part of case selection, but certainly in the past because I didn't, I didn't really understand. This is, this is for an educated patient. Yeah, I don't mean someone with lots of letters after them. They seem to be dentally educated and they need to be dexterous. So under those, if they cannot do that, this is where, where you know, we talk about failure. These are the patients who, to be honest, they will still get, in my hands, they'll still get a very good result, but they won't get, they won't maximize their result. It'll get, it'll be good, but they'll never get to excellent. So that's where you've got to work it out. Yeah. If it's a patient who's completely uncompliant, then, I, then this technique won't work. So in between, if mm. I was to come across that in the future, I think then that's where like some of the walking bleaching techniques would be appropriate. So, so yeah. th that's what I use. Maybe if we talk about that. If I'll just describe oh, to you yeah, my yeah, technique, yeah. Uh, what I do do now nowadays is patient comes in for consultation, make sure you get your diagnosis correct, make sure that everything we said before, that uh, the, the tooth is ready to go with a lovely seal. So usually Caesar would uh, see them and do the endodontics and bring up this perfect plug uh, of, of, of resin or, or GIC, whatever it is. And, and I, I can see beautifully inside there. So at that appointment, I would scan their teeth ready for whitening trays. I would then actually put rubber dam on, gain access uh, and place my uh, carbamide peroxide inside carbide there, peroxide, yeah. followed by a bit of a, P a PTFE uh, and followed by uh, some uh, IRM. Okay, I, I just leave that on. And then a few weeks later, when they come for their whitening tray fit, the tooth, a lot of time, is significantly whiter already. Yeah. Okay, I would then re-access the tooth, wash it out, replace the carbamide peroxide gel, make my seal again with, uh, with IRM, and then now give them the, the whitening tray. And then they will be doing, um, and then sometimes I do it where they have the adjacent teeth cut out. And sometimes I've been brave enough because it's going well just to give them the, the full tray. And then they come back a few weeks later and now everything's whiter and the tooth is whiter. So you've got to pick your cases, I guess. I have been burnt before where uh, all the other rest teeth whiten and there's one lags behind. So you've got to just pick and choose carefully. Uh, and then when they come back for the final time, I'm then happy to wash it out my GIC all the way. And in the future checkup, I'll then replace that last bit with composite. So that, that seems to work well in my hands at the moment. And that's my preferred way at the moment, just because to get someone in a few days later is a nightmare. And so sequencing wise, uh, I like that. Have you experienced this technique? Uh, no, any, no. Anything that you think that we should be careful with when do, doing this technique? No, I think actually that's a, for a less compliant patient, that is, or someone, I think that's a far, when I say safer technique, as in like your, your results will be, they'll be slow, but they'll be predictable. The walking technique, mm -hmm. there's a degree of unpredictability about it. In I think it will always work. It just, I don't know how quickly my technique works. So under those circumstances, yes, I will, I'll happily seal it in. But with, with all, with that technique that you described and my technique, have you thought about how time consuming this is? This is, this is not a mm. quick solution to something, you know? The, the very little data mm -hmm. that tells us it's this is five to six hours that we'll be spending. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm spending way less, and and like uh, typically I charge around about nine hundred to a thousand pounds for a single tooth, and then this is after. So okay, this is after, after they had their root canal and they're paid. Yeah, after endodontic, they come and see me, and I'm all I'm doing is the whitening, the access two times, the bleaching, and then the restorative. So we're spending in total about one to two hours. So uh, yeah, that's my fees. And I, uh, but I think I guess if you include the consultation appointment and the root canal uh, and the follow up review, then yes, that they can. Yeah, you've got to charge for the review. Yeah, if it's a half an hour, mm -hmm. you've got to factor that in. 
And, and, and that's fine. Yeah. So really what you do is you take your hourly rate, you multiply it by how long ever it takes you, you add your laboratory fees, mm-hmm. you include the review yeah. appointments. That's, how, that's mm-hmm. how much you... I mean, the, the lesson there, the great lesson you shared there, AJ, and it could have been missed, is that when you're doing these uh, internal bleaching techniques, don't charge for just a little bit more than your normal whitening. This should be significantly yeah. more than your normal whitening by multiple fold because you are reaccessing the tooth, you're placing rubber dam, you're doing all these things which are time consuming. Very uh, good point made. So, and, and ultimately, look, we're here talking about this because it's the right thing to do, right? So what, why, why charge less for doing the right thing? You know, what we don't want these patients to do is wander off and have a veneer or a crown or things like that if that's not indicated on these teeth. So we've got to charge well for doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah, very, uh, very good point made. Any final uh, considerations or, or, or tips that you want to pass on to the young dentist listening who may be uh, coming up to trying it the, for the first time and, and, and looking into which techniques they can use to maximize success or any mistakes that you've made in the past that you just remembered that you want to share? Anything that you could share with us? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, all of this I'm telling you is based on my, my own mistakes. So, uh, I mean, I've given you my the way I do it. So having an educated patient is quite important. Them really understanding and just from a legality point of view that you've got to remember that the, currently we're in a position that the first course of whitening needs to be done by the dentist. So what that means to me is I'm, I want to load the gel in there and I want to put some on there and start them off as they leave. And then I've fulfilled my responsibilities as doing the first course of whitening. Mm-hmm. This is in the UK. Regarding cleaning, uh, go on, tell me. Because two, two things I actually just checked my notes now that I want to discuss and I forgot to mention. So let's just also touch on uh, A, what do you tell the patient regarding relapse? And also, what do you tell the patient and do you worry about internal resorption? You know, when I started to do this technique many years ago, my principal said, oh, but make sure you warn about internal resorption. Uh, and so I've never experienced it so far with any of my patients. I believe, and you'll, you'll know the history of this way better than me, is that this used to be from times when we used to use much stronger chemicals to whiten the tooth and also heated techniques. I believe they used to get a ball burnisher and, and put a flame to make it go red hot and then stick it inside, uh, which we don't do anymore. So is internal resorption a, as big of a concern now than it used to be? And then also just talk about relapse. That, that'll, be, that'll cover, cover all bases. Fair enough. So... Firstly, remember we've got we're looking at we're looking at survivor bias here, right? These are often traumatized teeth, and traumatized teeth get resorption. You just couldn't you just didn't realise it before. And someone did whitening and then they say, Oh, there's a resorption, then two must come together. It's a classic post hoc fallacy, right? So actually mm. now I do cobium CTs and I see there's plenty of pre existing resorption for a start. So that's one thing. And secondly, that was one of the real concerns. You will probably be too young to remember, but certainly when like so tooth whitening was illegal when I graduated. It's illegal by the by the letter of the law and only became legal not that long ago. It's probably legal in the last 10 years, something like that. I think it was 2010. I think it was 2010. Something, yeah, something, something in that region. Yeah. And so and one of the problems was yes, there were questions about safety now. The, and because people were mixing up all these techniques. Yes. So the classic sort of is it spazzer, I think. And then there was the nutting and po techniques from the early 60s where they used these sodium perborates and heated them and and they released enormous amounts of hydrogen peroxide what would now be illegal amounts of hydrogen peroxide and it's one of the reasons that the european laws came in for this particular thing is actually to stop these like very large productions of hydrogen peroxide so that's why we are limited to six percent so carbamide peroxide kind of there's different kind of ways that it dissociates but fundamentally it splits up into urea and hydrogen peroxide and then the hydrogen peroxide usually dissociates into water and free oxygen species right and that's what the whitening mm-hmm. so even though we're buying carbamide peroxide really we the law relates to the hydrogen peroxide so 10% carbamide peroxide 16% carbamide peroxide is fine 
because it dissociates to less than 6% hydrogen peroxide. But by about three to one. So the maximum would be about 18%, right? Carbon yeah, peroxide yeah. would be But there. interesting, yeah. you've got to be careful because you can certainly buy a lot more than that in the UK. You can buy more than that in the UK. So if you went on the internet, you can get, let's say, Polonite 22%, which is completely fine, but actually is not designed for the European markets and is, you can buy it, but you can't give it to your patients because it's illegal, unfortunately. So just be a bit careful of that. But these mm -hmm. old fashioned techniques used to dissociate a massive amount of hydrogen peroxide, which were heated and would cause resorption because fundamentally they'd kill bits of the cementoblasts and the periodontal ligaments and the Sharpies fibers and they would lead to resorption. But that is very different to the carbon peroxide that we use now, which disassociates into very small amounts of hydrogen peroxide. And that's part of the basis that we have a legal limit to what we can provide for our patients. So do I worry about mm. internal resorption or external resorption? Well, internal resorption, no, because it's a pulpless tooth. External resorption, mm -hmm. no, I don't worry about it in as much that I know I'm not going to cause it, but it's pre-existing in more patients than you think. And you'll realize that the more cone beam CT scans you take. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, that really aids us in terms of making sure that in, when in doubt, a CBCT scan, like you said, you know, really has its value. So that's, that's a real gem that you shared there. And regarding relapse, I always find that um, even just with success rate, I find that the, the black teeth whiten super well to white teeth in my experience. But sometimes the, the, the dark yellow orange ones that maybe still leave a tinge of, of yellow uh, brown. And then someone once told me that this is not, I don't know if it's evidence based or not, that perhaps those orangey ones are the also the troublesome ones when it comes to relapse, but I have no scientific uh, basis or data on that, on that. But in terms of relapse, what have you observed and what do you tell your patients? Okay, so they will relapse. <laughs> in my hands, they will relapse. And that's part of my consent process to say, look, I can't do any dentistry that last forever. But we have failures. There are good failures and there are bad failures. If you do a full, march of, a full arch of implants and they fail, that is a bad failure. If you have a single tooth, which you've done a root filling on, and you've whitened and it gets slightly less white, that is a different level of failure. So I kind of, talking about it early, I, that's just part of the consequences. Mm. AJ, I think the true failure would be to not talk about failure when you're doing this kind of trip. That's the Absolutely. true failure, right? If you miss the opportunity to talk about failures at the beginning, that's when you get yourself in hot water. So the orange, and I so personally, I haven't noticed that subtle distinction, but can I go back to diagnosis? Diagnostically, mm. they're usually different. If you've got a tooth which has not been root filled and has got blood products in there and they go that brownie black color purpley sometimes they whiten mm. fantastically well and equally so do the ones which are discolored because of endodontic products fantastically well because you can solve the problem if but you mustn't confuse that with the patients who actually have let's say have a vital tooth and have orangey brown discoloration which you often see when they get sclerosis because really what they're doing mm -hmm. is building more and more and more dentine so those two are not comparable because the one with more and more dentine on a vital tooth will be harder to whiten and will relapse more because they're still growing more denty. Whereas the ones you do the proper internal external whitening on will again relapse, but will not relapse at the same rate. And just because they relapse, my patients, I've unfortunately been standing still long enough to see plenty of my own failures. It's mm -hmm. actually very easy because often you could just reuse their same tray. You don't need to do internal whitening again. All you do is use that same bleaching tray that I've given them to just target that one tooth. And what they need is just some more gel. And that can be mm. from me, that can be from their general dentist. As long as it's from a regulated healthcare professional, it doesn't matter. So as failures go, that is a real good failure.
uh, when you put it like that in that perspective that is really good to hear and I think uh, those who are considering to do this technique don't be scared as long as you get your diagnosis right and you have a plan and you want to use one of the protocols that we discussed AJ this was immensely valuable you know I've been uh, getting asked about this kind of topic and I've been looking for, for the right guest so I'm re- I really appreciate you coming on and discussing this I think your experience and your, your handouts do I have permission to share yeah, your handouts please, with yeah, the Patricia yeah, Rati absolutely and, 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 and any of the papers and stuff like that I can certainly give them to you I, I don't know if you're allowed to distribute them or not but no look this is I'm, we're standing on the shoulders of giants I've quoted lots of names but not to name drop but I'm just I'm really just reusing what I've learned from them and as, as you do so no please this oh, must be always, always absolutely that, that, that's the name of the game and that's how we just share what we've learned before and uh, improve one day at a time so uh, AJ this has been absolutely amazing just tell everyone where you work and, and, and you know someone uh, who has a tricky case maybe near you and, and, and whereabouts exactly you work what's the name of your practice they might want to refer patients to you also any educational um, content that you have any, any courses that you run perhaps uh, you're involved in teaching because I know you said you did a BDA webinar recently so tell us about the, those kind of activities uh, so my, so my practice is in Hassex, which is just north of Brighton but our catchment area because we're a purely specialist referral practice we have sort of there's about 10 or 11 of us all specialists and consultants so we are we, we see patients from all over Kent Surrey and Sussex uh, we do a lot of children's dentistry and things like that and we I don't do much national lecturing or anything like that firstly because I don't have time as you know I've got three daughters but also because we just do our in-house CPD evenings they're free we have dentists which come over from all over Kent, Surrey and Sussex, just come and hang out. You've seen how I lecture. I'm, you know, most of my lectures will be about the things that I've messed up and what I've done to get myself out of the trouble. I love it. I love um, it. So, uh, so they're free evening lectures at Greystone Referral Centre. And then I do a few kind of some of the national talks. I do the BDA uh, Combe Masterclass and I teach on the BDA Restoring Implants. Uh, masterclass and and that's pretty much and but I and the rest of the time I'm just in private practice doing lots and lots of dentistry and making lots and lots of failures and having a laugh about the wood I make and learning more and then doing the best I can. I really appreciate your, your humility and your, and your humble attitude. Uh, it's, it's really, really nice to hear. And AJ, thanks for Patricia Rati for coming to making this complex topic a little bit more easier to manage and, and, and breaking down really nicely for us. So uh, thank you so much. And it, it'd be great to have you on, uh, on again one day. I think uh, I really like your your style and your the way that you brought in some, some stories. And, you know, we end up talking about the Statue of Liberty. So that's pretty cool. So <laughs> thanks again for your time. Pleasure. Well, there we have it, guys. Hope you enjoy that very detailed guide into internal bleaching and all you have to do if your protrusive premium is answer a few questions and yet again you can get another verified CPD or CE certificate and a chance to validate your learning what's not to love about that don't forget in the protrusive vault section to download those three PDFs that we're giving away at the end of this episode and if you ever have a colleague who's stuck on internal bleaching protocols you better direct them to this episode so thank you once again for listening all the way to the end I'll catch you in the next one I don't know exactly when the next one might be it might be in four days time might be in eight days time it depends on when baby number two lands it may have landed already by the time you listen to this or I might be patiently waiting for baby number two we're super excited thanks for all your love and support guys and I'll catch you in the next one